People of God, once again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Psalm 1, which we've just sung together, will be another, uh, God willing, reflection upon many of the truths which we'll consider with God's help this, this afternoon, particularly as we see in verse 3, where the righteous man who is called blessed is described so beautifully in spiritual fruitfulness. And not only is this indeed a picture of our Savior, but by extension, brothers and sisters, it is also a description of all of Christ's people in union with Him, participating in and reflecting His fruitfulness. So with that theme then of spiritual fruitfulness then, let's turn uh, to our reading in God's Word to the New Testament book of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be reading as we did in the morning from verses 16 through 25. This morning we briefly considered from this same text the contrast between the flesh and the spirit, and specifically how the new life in Christ comes to a visible expression in and through us in what is described in our text as the fruit of the Spirit and how essential it is that we abide in Christ in order to have the fruit of the Spirit made manifest in our lives because if Christ was fruitful in the works that He did and continues to do, then you too, as you abide in Him, will also be fruitful. So with that, let's read Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Please, once again, give your attention to the reading of God's most holy word. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Amen. May God be pleased to command a blessing upon the reading, hearing, and so too now the preaching of His most holy word. And let us pray once more to that end. 
Our Father in heaven, how we thank Thee for Your Word. We thank Thee for its life-giving power. We thank Thee, O God, for, the, for Your Spirit who applies this Word to our hearts and brings forth new life. We ask, O God, that Your Spirit be with and among us. Would You take Your Word and apply it to our hearts even tonight, even in this place, and may we bring forth fruit uh, for the praise of Christ. We ask for His sake. Amen. The title for this sermon, Putting on Christ, actually comes specifically from Romans chapter 13, and uh, verse 14, where the apostle exhorts us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And this concept of putting on and putting off is such a repeated theme in many of Paul's discourses in Ephesians Chapter 4, verses 22 and following, for example, he exhorts us to put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And he says something very similar also in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 and following. He says, but now you yourselves are to Put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language, and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who is Christ. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, and so on. And so to understand this concept of putting off and putting on, and what we are to put off and put on is vital to begin as we look at our passage in Galatians 5, specifically where we are told by the bookends of our text in verse 16 and 25 to walk in the Spirit. Because we see, brothers and sisters, this same contrast and concept in our passage this evening. As Paul contrasts the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit the works of the flesh we are to put off and the fruit of the Spirit we are to produce or to put on. So that with this in mind, what I'd like to do this evening is give answer to the question of what is the fruit of the Spirit specifically and how is it produced in our lives? What is the Holy Spirit desiring to produce in your life? And what is it to walk in the Spirit? In the sermon this morning, we thought about abiding in Christ, that we are only able to produce the fruit of the Spirit as we abide in Him. And so today, I want us to think more specifically about how the Spirit, in producing the fruit of the Spirit, conforms us to Christ. To show that the Spirit's aim and His active and enduring and indwelling work in you is to conform you and mold you and shape you into a man or woman or boy or girl who resembles Christ in all things. And friends, when we see what is described as the fruit of the Spirit in our text, what is in view here goes far beyond just being good for goodness sake. But it is the evidence of the Spirit's indwelling work in you. And once we understand that, then it becomes much easier to answer the question that the, the goal or the aim and the spirit 
in producing his fruit in your life is to conform you to Jesus Christ and to cultivate in your life Christ-likeness. If we would put off the works of the flesh and if we would see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our lives, then we must put on Christ. So we'll consider then our text under three main headings. First, Christ-likeness activated. Second, Christ-likeness cultivated. And thirdly, Christ-likeness imitated. So first, Christ-likeness activated. Verses 16 through 21 of our text. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will walk in the Spirit. The Spirit will activate Christ-likeness. First off, the imperative given to us in verses 16 and 25, again, the bookends of our text, to walk in the Spirit, implies that you have the Spirit. Because, brothers and sisters, you cannot walk in the Spirit if you do not have the Spirit. The flesh cannot put off the flesh. Neither can you put on the Lord Jesus Christ by the arm of the flesh. You must have the Spirit What is described in verse 17 of our text is a uniquely Christian conflict. If you are outside Christ, friend, then the Spirit does not wage war against the flesh because you don't possess the Spirit. But when the Spirit takes up His dwelling in you and you understand your sinful condition, you begin to feel the tension of this conflict. As we saw in our sermon this morning, our text is bearing witness to us that there is a, a constant war raging inside the life of every child of God. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. Galatians 5.17 But our fight is not against the physical flesh of others, but our own flesh. That is, our own carnality in our hearts. And we're either yielding one to one or to the other, to the flesh or to the spirit. There is no middle and there is no neutral ground. And though the two natures of the believer, that is, the fleshly or sinful nature and his spiritual nature, although these two, these two natures are invisible, the, the works Of the flesh, as our text states in verse 19, these things are clearly evident. They are manifest outwardly. They are seen and they are known and evident. One of the ways, friend, that you can be sure that others see the sinful works of your flesh which you are producing in your life is just to think about how easy it is for you to see the faults and the sins of others. We are often so blinded to our own sin, but we must be reminded, friends, and humbled that these things are manifest. In other words, if you're living in these things, the Apostle is telling us you aren't fooling anybody, let alone fooling God, who knows even the thoughts and intents and meditations of every human heart. Be not deceived, the Apostle warns us just a few lines down in Galatians chapter 6. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. 
Dear friends, you cannot fool God. And the first step in the right direction towards repentance and and to put on Christ is to stop fooling yourself. How easily we fool ourselves into thinking we're virtuous because we don't physically commit adultery. When the Lord says that he who looks upon another with a lustful gaze has committed adultery already in his heart. We think we are good because we have not committed a murder. When the Lord says that to harbor anger or bitterness or hatred towards another is for you to commit murder already in your heart. Friends, if you do not know Christ or if you're masquerading as a believer and you are living a double life with many of your works of the flesh done in secret, whether it's behind the closed doors in private or in the unchecked lusts of the flesh, hear the words of the Apostle again, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Or as he says in verse 21 of our text, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now it's important, friends, to note that this does not mean that if you have ever committed one of these sins outlined in verse 19 to 21, that you are not in Christ or that you can never inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what's in view here. Paul is referring here to a pattern of life, a, a consistent or a reoccurring or repetition, repetitious pattern of life, not a momentary or isolated incident. Because just as this morning, like, like we saw, like the enduring fruit of the Spirit which evidences our life in Christ, the persistent works of the flesh are outward evidences of a life not in Christ. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So what's the remedy then to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh? Verse 16, walk in the Spirit, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will walk in the Spirit. But how do, we, how do we do that? Listen to Romans 8, verse 13. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Mortifying the deeds of the body, that is mortifying sin through the Spirit. Now, I want us to hang out here just for a moment to mortify sin through the Spirit. Friends, so often our problem is we don't know how to walk in the Spirit because we don't know how to mortify sin. Let's think about how Paul puts it in verse 24 of our text. He says that they who are Christ's, that is, they who have the Spirit, have crucified, crucified the flesh. Mortifying sin or crucifying the flesh simply means that through the Spirit we have been given not only the desires, friends, but also the power to resist the temptations of the flesh. And he says, crucify the flesh specifically for at least two reasons. 
The first is in the definitive sense, the definitive sense to remind us of our union with Christ. We can't miss how important this is. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are so united to Christ, friends, that our old self, our unregenerate self, was nailed to the cross with him definitively. For you are dead, Paul says, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 3. In the other sense in which we must understand what it means to crucify the flesh is in the progressive sense. That is the constant and daily mortifying of sin. Even as Christ, our Savior, was crucified in His flesh, so He calls us, friends, to follow Him and to likewise crucify our own flesh. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8.34 Now that is, of course, not to physically persecute our own bodies like the medieval flagellans used to do. The flesh in view here is our fleshly sinful nature, but nor is it to simply just take up a cross and to walk with it. But as John Stott once put it, he said, we must see that the execution takes place. Just as crucifixion was a, a pitiless, a pitiless execution, friends, so you too must be pitiless towards your sin. Crucifixion was not a noble death. Those condemned to die by crucifixion were not to be regarded as respectable or with dignity, but they were the committers of such evil that their actions deserved no better mercy than to be crucified. And just as crucifixion was a sentence that meant certain death, so the crucifixion of your flesh, friends, needs to be decisive. In other words, we have not truly crucified the flesh if we are constantly returning to the place of execution and removing the nails. We must decisively crucify the flesh with all its passions and lusts and leave it, and leave it nailed to the cross to die. And when the flesh seems to be wanting to get the upper hand, either through a, a covetous thought or a a temptation to lie or thinking something impure, whatever else it may be. Our attitude, friends, should not be one of pity by removing it from the cross, but of driving another nail through it. Friends, I firmly believe that the reason why so many of us continue to struggle with indwelling sin, even after the Word of God tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ has broken its power in our lives is because we don't know how to get ruthless with our own sin. We don't realize that the putting off of the old man really means crucifixion. 
If you are in Christ, then He has made it possible for you through the Spirit to no longer yield yourself to the flesh, but to yield yourself to the Spirit. Your sin, friends, and mine, just like Pharaoh was to Israel, is a cruel taskmaster. And the only one who can free us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And once released, we have His Spirit guiding us and indwelling us and producing His fruit in our lives. The remedy which God has provided for you to not fulfill the lust of the flesh is to walk in the Spirit. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will walk in the Spirit. Without the Spirit, you are powerless against sin. You cannot mortify the flesh in the power of the flesh. Only then is our old man crucified with Him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Romans 6.6 6. Christ has redeemed us from the bondage to sin in order to bring us into the service of God. No longer in the chains of bondage to our sin, helpless to free ourselves from it, but now we have been set free by our Savior in order to serve Him through the Spirit. Here Romans 6.19, For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness, unto holiness. Let's move on to our second heading then, Christ-likeness cultivated, verses 22 through 24. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will walk in the Spirit. The Spirit will cultivate Christ-likeness. Just as we saw the works of the flesh are manifest, so too is the fruit of the Spirit. And while the works of the flesh are manifest to expose us as sinners, which should produce repentance, the fruit of the Spirit is manifest to evidence our union with Christ to produce assurance. Assurance that we are in Christ Brothers and sisters, look at this list in our text of the fruit of the Spirit. Does this describe your persistent disposition? It's interesting that in the English as well as the Greek that the word for works of the flesh is in the plural form and the word for the fruit of the Spirit is in the singular form. It is not the fruits of the Spirit like strawberries, apples and oranges and bananas, but it is a singular fruit. And I think what may be considered by that is the unity by which the fruit of the Spirit is operative. In other words, we can think of the fruit of the Spirit as a, as a bouquet of flowers. They're not individual items, but they're presented together in unity as a bouquet. Like you can't be humble and impatient at the same time. And furthermore, these aren't spiritual gifts like you have the fruit of love and I don't have that one, but I have the fruit of joy. No, they are the singular fruit of the Spirit and are always present together. 
Some of them may be more manifest than others, depending on the individual, but they are always present together. And every child of God must naturally bring forth the singular fruit of the Spirit. The will of God for all of us, friends, is our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 The calling we all have in this life is one to holiness. And before we proceed, friends, I want us all to be reminded of how utterly impossible it is for any of us to produce Christ-likeness or the fruit of the Spirit in our own strength apart from Christ. We saw it this morning, John 15.4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. And I want to say it again, friends. And as we'll see in just more in just a moment, the aim and the goal of the Spirit in cultivating this fruit in you is to conform you to Christ Himself. These are His character traits. This fruit is not your meritorious fruit, but it is the fruit which evidences that you are in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who is the root, and all these other things, love, joy, peace, and so on, which are the fruit. And as we saw this morning, just as a a branch must abide in a vine to have the organic nutrients and life pumped into it to bear fruit, in the very same way, through your union with Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ and the life of Christ in dwelling and animating you to be fruitful. So that you are, as Paul says in Galatians 4, so that Christ is being formed in you, as Paul says in Galatians 4. Friends, how this truth ought to stagger us. What a source of comfort it would be to many of our hardships. What a source of encouragement it would be to many of our difficulties, to think and to meditate upon the fact that you are united in this way to the eternal and resurrected and reigning Son of God. And the expectation of our Savior is that you will be fruitful. All who are in Him will bear fruit. Indeed, He says, much fruit. Just as Christ, who has taken on your flesh, was fruitful, so you too as you abide in Him, will be fruitful. But just like any fruit-bearing tree, the fruit of the Spirit as well must be cultivated. It must be cultivated. Or to state it another way, as Paul said to Timothy, exercise thyself unto godliness. So often when we think of how we may walk in obedience to the Lord, we go straight to the negative, don't we? We think of all the things that we must not do. In other words, we focus on the putting off of the works of the flesh. But how often do we pursue the putting on of the fruit of the Spirit? When we think of the Ten Commandments, for example, which all but two, the fourth and the fifth, are stated in the negative, we completely forget the positive implications or applications of the law. And we must not do that, friends. If we are to be fruitful, we must remember 
that every thou shalt not is not only telling us to put off something, but the, the implication is that we are to put on something else. And when we think of our passage in Galatians 5 and how to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, there are a couple of other passages which I think are very helpful for us. For example, as Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, he is correspondingly telling us in Colossians chapter 3 to put off the works of the old man and to put on the fruit which the Spirit produces in the new man. And this is so important because we can be so preoccupied with our sins of commission. That is, the, the things which we do or have done that are sinful, that we often overlook our sins of omission. And that is those, those things which we ought to have done but did not do. For example, in Ephesians 4, 25 and following, Paul says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. In verse 28, he says, Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may give to him that needeth. In verse 29 he says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And again in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so if we are to put on Christ, dear friends, and if we are to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, we must guard against these potential sins of omission. We must approach those positive implications of the law cataloged in the fruit of the Spirit. Remember Paul's words in Galatians 5.14, where he says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Which you will notice is stated in the positive. Remembering that the aim of the Spirit's work in you is to form Christ in you and to conform you to His image. And that, friends, is what the fruit of the Spirit is. Because the Spirit, friends, does not cause us to do strange or bizarre things like we see in so many charismatic circles but what the Spirit causes us to do is Christ-like things. The change that the Holy Spirit affects upon us is that He gives us a new nature. And that new nature is in harmony and in accord with the very nature of Christ Himself. It must be so if we are brought into union with Him, even as members of His own body. Friends, if you examine yourself and it is evident that this fruit is not being manifest in your life, ask yourself, why not? Why not? What is hindering you from producing fruit? Are you yielding to the flesh and not the Spirit? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Before we transition to our final heading, let me give you my own definition of what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is the moral reflection of Christ and the consistent disposition of a person who is united to Him.
The fruit of the Spirit is the moral reflection of Christ and the consistent disposition of a person who is united to Him. In other words, it is the Christ, the fruit of the Spirit is the Christ-like attributes which reflect and follow after the pattern of our Lord. And so the true test of the Spirit's presence in your life is, are you bearing the fruit in your life that evidences the moral reflections of the character of Christ Himself? Do you bear the stamp of Christ? Are you indeed Christ-like? And so our final heading then, Christ-likeness is Christ-imitated. Christ-likeness is Christ-imitated. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will walk in the Spirit. The Spirit will form Christ in you. I hope we're starting to see, friends, that the aim and purpose of the Spirit's work in you is that you imitate our Savior. That the fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit's work of cultivating Christ-likeness in you. Not just to put off sinful lust, for example, but that you put on Christ-like purity. And as we've seen, there is a passive and an active element in this. It is the Spirit's work, yes, yet you must exercise thyself unto godliness. For example, we are led of the Spirit, verse 18, passive, and we walk in the Spirit, verse 25, active. The Spirit leads, but we do the walking. And although it is the Spirit who must lead and enable us, the Christian life is not one of continual passive submission to the Spirit. That would contradict, friends, every imperative of God's Word upon us. Let go and let God sounds pious, but it is completely unbiblical. In verse 16, the, the Greek word for what has been translated as walk is what we would expect, the ordinary word for walk, walk in the Spirit. But the same phrase in verse 25, walk in the Spirit, a different Greek word is used. And the implication in verse 25 is to walk in line with something or to be in line with something, literally to follow. I think some English translations may even render verse 25 as walk in step with the Spirit. And Paul uses the same Greek word, for example, in Romans 4 to describe believers who share in Abraham's faith that they also walk in line with his footsteps. So to walk in the Spirit then, as described in verse 25, is to deliberately and to purposefully walk according to the pattern He has led us in. In other words, to walk as Jesus walked. 1 John 2.6 tells us, He who says he abides in Christ ought himself also to walk even as He walked. Just as you decisively and purposefully take up your cross and crucify the flesh, you must decisively and purposefully, friends, follow after Christ and walk as He walked. When Paul stated in the negative that whoever practices the works of the flesh shall not inherit the kingdom of God, the implication of the positive is that your new way of life should be one that is marked 
by the ongoing cultivating of the fruit of the Spirit in imitation of our Savior. You are not called to just passively let go and let God, but you must decisively and actively walk, friends, in the way the Spirit has clearly led you to walk in imitation of our Savior. And when you do that, you will not fail to receive joyful assurance provided by the clear evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, which will be manifest in your life. The change that the Holy Spirit effects upon you when you are born again is that He gives you a new nature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And brothers and sisters, that new nature that He gives us is in harmony with the nature of our Savior whom we are united to. In conforming us to the image of Christ, the Spirit shapes our attitudes and He molds our characters and our loves and our desires to match those of our Savior. And so to view the Spirit-filled life as one that merely seeks after spiritual manifestations or sign gifts or things like these is to miss and, and even by extension to deny what the Spirit is doing. Even now, every day in your life and in mine, and that is to conform you to Christ, to form Christ in you by applying the gospel in your life. In other words, the Spirit's aim by virtue of your union with Christ is to produce not signs and wonders, but the manifestation of the very character and nature of Christ in you. Our text does not say that the fruit of the Spirit is miracles, signs, and wonders, but that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and such other things which reflect the nature and the character of our Lord. Because the fruit of the Spirit is the means and the evidence of the Spirit's work in Christ's people used to nurture and sustain and grow and mature us until we all, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, friends, hear this, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Ephesians 4, 13-15. That is what the Spirit is doing in the lives of God's people. Not entertaining us and satisfying our carnal curiosity for divine magic tricks, but working Christ into each one of us until we all at last come in the unity of the faith through mature Christ-like character. The Pharisees, on more than one occasion, you might remember, told Jesus to perform a sign for them. 
Do you remember his response to this demand? He answered in Matthew 12, he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. An evil and adulterous generation. Why specifically adulterous? They were guilty of spiritual adultery. That is, you show yourself to be a spiritual adulterer when you are not content with what you have from the Spirit that has been freely given to you now. Or when you seek after or desire and lust after new and different and foreign things. When you're not content with what the Spirit of God has revealed about God and His Word, and the fruit of the Spirit is not something you're content to cultivate, but your carnal and discontent and unsettled heart lusts after new revelation or spectacular signs. But what are we to seek after, friends? What are we to seek after then? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Christ tells you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for signs and miraculous gifts, but for righteousness, His righteousness, for they for they shall be filled. You want the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, friends? Then seek after these things. Seek to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. You want to stop fulfilling the lust of the flesh? Seek after these things. You want to know what spiritual maturity looks like and how you can grow in more grace and be more Christ-like? Seek these things, pray for these things, cultivate these things, exercise yourself unto these things, and put into practice these things. It's not the manifestation of spectacular sign gifts, which is the gauge that demonstrates our spiritual growth and maturity, but the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit as we walk in the Spirit, and reflecting the very character of Christ Himself. This is everyone's calling who is in Christ. It is a call to holiness. To be holy or to be set apart as God's people by necessity means that you will bear fruit consistent with the aim of the Spirit's work in your sanctification conforming you more and more to Christ's image by cultivating His same qualities of character. It is because Christ was chaste and pure in every way that you and I are also exhorted to not just put off immorality, but to cultivate Christ-like chastity and purity, to cultivate Christ-like temperance in all things. I want to say it again, friends. And I'm closing very soon. So often we pray in our confession of sin for the Lord to help us to stop doing those sins of commission. But how often do we pray for the Spirit's help in helping us against our sins of omission to help us to cultivate Christ-like love, to help us to cultivate Christ-like joy and peace. John 14, 12, hear this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Praise God. Is this not a motivation for you, dear brothers and sisters? Is this not motivation for you to strive for greater holiness, to put off all the things that pertain to the old man, and to put on all those things that have been freely, freely given to you. Christ in all his fullness has been freely given to you. Oh, that we would cultivate the fruit of the Spirit to be able to love one another with the very love of Christ, producing all those offshoots of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, resulting in greater joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, friends. Seek to cultivate Christ-likeness in every area of mortified sin. And let us pray that the Spirit would help us in greater measures to break up the fallow ground of our hearts, to plant the good seed of the gospel there that we may be more like Christ and bear much fruit. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let him who was immoral put off immorality, but rather let him put on all purity, even as Christ was pure. Let him entreat every older woman as a mother and every younger woman as a sister. Let him who was hot-tempered put off his wrath, but rather let him put on patience and gentleness, remembering the long-suffering of the Lord with himself and how gentle and kind Christ has been to him in his weakness. I am concluding now with this. Friends, we must, we must examine ourselves. What fruit are you producing in your life? Is it the rotten fruit of the works of the flesh that evidences your sowing to the flesh? Or is it the fruit of the Spirit that truly evidences you are abiding in the vine? No matter, friends, no matter how small your fruit is, be encouraged. Be encouraged because your obedience to the Lord is the fruit of your justification and not the root. Your fruit-bearing, no matter how small, is the Holy Spirit at work in you who causes you to imitate the very nature of Christ himself, displaying Christ's character in you and in fruitfulness. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Amen. Let's call upon the name of the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we, how we thank Thee for Your Word. How we thank Thee, O God, for our union with Christ. How we thank Thee, O Lord, that we are fruitful even as He was fruitful. Would You please, Lord, help us to carry these truths that You have given to us this evening, to carry them home, to speak upon them and ponder them upon our beds. Would You plant Your Word, Father, 
deep into our hearts. And please cause us to bear fruit. For Christ's sake, amen.